Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, cultural, and social implications of life in diaspora. My name is Ben Yanowitz. And I'm Zach Smerin. Today, we are talking to members of the Shabbos 24-7 Collective. Shabbos 24-7 provides a social, cultural, and political organizing space for queer diasporist Jews in Belgium. The three members themselves all live in Belgium, but they grew up in various corners of the world, providing us with a truly diasporic experience. During our chat, we discuss the interconnected topics of queerness and diasporism. It is important to explore these topics together because, as Claire Bergen discussed in her dissertation, Diasporism as an Emergent Jewish Movement, one way to understand diasporism is as queer Judaism, which stands in opposition to the normative form of Judaism that many of us are more familiar with. Chatting with members of Shabbos 24-7 was especially interesting as Belgium's specific political context provides a unique setting to explore what diasporism looks like as a practice. While the podcast is a bit scattered thematically, we enjoyed the conversational atmosphere that came from our guests being in the same room together. If you have any feedback regarding this or any other aspect of the podcast, you can now get in touch directly. Send us any fan mail, hate mail, or just plain vanilla mail to contact at jewishdiasporist.com. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Hello to all of you. Good Shabbos. Would each of you like to say a little bit about yourselves individually, just to begin? My name is David Bernstein. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Moved to Europe to study art, and I make art. It's my life. I'm an artist. My name's Catherine Bailey-Glockman. I'm a Belgian citizen. I have lived here for eight years now. I'm from the UK. I work in an NGO. I'm Felia Fischler and I was born in Belgium, in Antwerp, but I spent a long time living in the UK and now I'm back in Belgium since a couple of years. And I work mostly with, I guess, feminist movements. And you are all part of Shabbos 24-7. So what is Shabbos 24-7? How did you start? What do you do? That's a lot of questions. What if we started just with the name, Shabbos 24-7? Should I explain the name? You can explain the name. Or maybe we should say what we are. Okay, you go first. Okay. You can say what we are. Shabbos 24-7 is a collective for queer diasporist Jews who are in Belgium. We are primarily a space for people who connect with all of those identities, experiences, to find each other and to be together and to enjoy those identities and experiences without having to explain any one of those things. We do a range of activities. Some of them are a little bit more activist-y. Some of them are a bit more artistic. Some of them are just, quote-unquote, I'm doing the finger waggle, social and about hanging out together, having a nice time. So we do a lot of Shabbat evenings together. We have picnics in parks. We go to movies. We screen movies that our members have made. We get invited to panels increasingly. We have run a couple of workshops on issues related to anti-Semitism. We made a zine. We make zines. We're making our second zine is coming out soon. On Queer Jewish Joy. Yes. 
One other thing is that we also have the virtual space. So we have WhatsApp groups, mm. and I think a lot of our existence happens also there. Mm. A lot of like sharing memes or sharing personal stories or things that are happening and we need to talk about. And the name? So we explain the name. When I moved here, I didn't really know anyone. Coming from London, I had access to left wing Jewish spaces, and I knew that didn't really exist as much here. And so I started to.、Uh, <laughs> Harass people into hanging out, including Catherine, who I met here. We ended up gathering how many? Six, seven queer Jews. We had a Shabbat at my apartment, which just I had a table which was a plank, and I didn't have any chairs, so we sat in a circle on the floor. And it was still COVID, so we sat two meters apart. And it started there with the idea of the collective wasn't there yet. It was just a Shabbat meal, and then it kind of grew from there. But the twenty-four-seven, we made a group chat on WhatsApp for a Shabbat on the twenty-fourth of July. And then we realized it was Shabbat twenty four seven, and we felt that worked very well as an anti capitalist message. So we just adopted it after that. It's a bit of an inside joke, so we have to explain it. But I still think it's good. No, I love the name just because when I mentioned it to my brother, actually, he was like, "Oh, I love the name," and I hadn't thought about it. But like, there's the sort of Abraham Joshua Heschel's reading of Shabbat as living for a moment in the messianic age to come, and then this idea of twenty four seven Shabbat. That's very, very, very anti capitalist, very radical. It's a very nice name, and it's funny that it's just coming out of the date that you had your first Shabbat. <laughs> in the last few weeks, I've been telling people about you, and almost every single time I've mentioned the name, the reactions have been. Full of smiles and positivity. It's, I think, a very good name. And what's the name of your zine? Just the Shabbos twenty four seven zine. Number one. Yeah, number one. So my mom was called number one. So the zine, the first zine, we were a much smaller group, right? So there were maybe six, seven people before、you. my time. A lot of it was about the experience of being queer and Jewish and in Belgium or connected to Belgium. So of course there is some stuff about antisemitism, about the Holocaust, but also just how do I reconcile these identities? And there was poetry. And stuff about our ancestors, and so I really love the process of making it. But then for the second one, we wanted something a little lighter, let's say. And so it's on queer Jewish joy, and there's a lot of art, actually much more artistic than the first one. I think I was the one who suggested the topic of Jewish joy because I was thinking about, I think it was an EU open call or a kind of new program from the EU to give funding for European Jewish organizations.、I、talked about culture, but then when you read a little bit more into it. Basically, it was all about memory and protection. I guess coming from the U.S. and coming to Europe, it's really confronting to see how often Judaism is almost like how people in the U.S. think about Native Americans, as if they're a thing of the past. I mean, it's not completely true, but there is a sense of it as like a, a historical object, like we're an abstract entity, and the thing that's important is to keep us safe. And of course, that's important, but we're also living here, creating new rituals. And new ideas and celebrating life, and so that made me think a lot about why we don't celebrate Jewish joy more, and why there isn't more programs and support for that. So that was kind of the genesis of that idea. I love that idea of focusing on queer Jewish joy. It's, I mean, queerness and Judaism historically they have often gone hand in hand, especially looking at the events in the 1930s where you did have a really strong Jewish trans movement in Germany, and groups like this they were crushed. They were the targets of the 
the Nazis. And it's often flattened to say it was the Jews targeted. And yes, obviously it was the Jews that were targeted, but it was these Jewish LGBT folks that were even more targeted. And it's really important to emphasize these stories and to be joyful as queer Jews. In fact, I think it's really important too, because it really is emphasizing the fact that we're still here and Hitler lost. And if we really want to honor those that perished, we really should be honoring their memory through joy. And I think it's one of the most beautiful things to do. And it's often directly connected to trauma as well. And I think as often you see in Judaism, trauma and joy go hand in hand. And there's deep contradictions there, but it's also part of what makes Judaism such a unique spiritual movement and phenomena. I was wondering as well, if you could say a little bit about the connection between queerness and your Jewish diasporism and how those two relate to one another. I think we'll have about 11 opening opinions on this. <laughs> in some ways, it's a very challenging question to answer because in some ways the answer is really simple. We just are these things, right? We're just Jewish people. We're just queer people. That is just who we are and what our lives are. You know, it's obviously, this is not the first time this question has ever been asked in the history of the world. Like, this gets written about a lot. What is it to be Jewish and queer? How are they woven together? And what are the points of traction between those things? And how do they relate to each other? They relate to each other because they're just natural experiences that we have. And we just happen to be queer and Jewish. And there are queer-phobic elements in much of Jewish community and in, you know, a lot of different Jewish communities. And there are anti-Semitic elements, racist elements, anti-religious elements in queer communities. And global society as a whole doesn't like any of those things. And so we have to make spaces where we can hang out together and just be free from explaining it. To me, that is just the most natural reaction that I have when asked, like, how did these two aspects of yourself fit together? I I think there are lots of other things that I can say about how I approach both of these aspects. Also how that relates to organising and how I want to go about social organising. I don't want to launch into like a whole exegesis on the nature of Hashem, but I think there is something certainly important for me about Jewish theology and this idea that our world is ours and it's up to us to save it. The only ones who are going to sort it out are us. And when we do harm to other people, the only people who can resolve that are us. There is no higher power that can fix the harm that people do to other people. Also, there is great potential for us to build a better version of that. And we have ways of seeing beyond the mainstream because our natural experience puts us outside that mainstream. And I think we have a sort of responsibility to take that experience and knowledge and act on it to make the world better because the only people who are going to make the world better are us. And so that for me is a link between how I relate to Judaism and how I relate to like what my queerness can ask me to do in the world to make it better. Preach! <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to the podcast Chai, How Are You? I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's like a queer Talmudic podcast. The main host is Kava de Cordova and she was saying in an episode, because I've been binging it this past week, because a friend recommended it to me. But she was saying that queerness makes perfect sense for Talmudic study because queers are always reading society in a new way. We're always rereading and finding our own texts and ways to approach the texts of the codes of society. And so 
by reading, we are able to also claim a certain authority and power that the rest of the society tries to define in their own normative way. And so if we can use those same tools to find our own content and ways of approaching it, we are also claiming a place and a way to understand and interpret that actually gives space and recognition and celebration of queer life and queer ideas. Because queerness isn't just like we are queer, of course, but queer is also a sort of ideological position to take. Like, I don't think everyone who's LGBTQ, well, I guess the Q, but I don't think everybody is queer in a way, in the sense they don't necessarily try to actually work towards making things better and thinking more broadly. I mean, you have lots of misogynist gays as well, I mean, gay men. Yeah, I think you've almost said everything, so I don't have that much to add, but the point on queer identity being political and not just a feeling is really important. The connection then with diasporism for me is the intentionality in it, the idea of solidarity, the idea of centering historically oppressed or marginalized communities, the idea of building community, like all of those are essential. And also what you both said about being on the outside and being able to see those perspectives from the margins. Queering as a verb is really interesting when you approach Judaism, not only on a theological level, but also when you look at like rituals and symbols, you can reinterpret and play with these things in all kinds of interesting ways. And I feel like queerness creates a liberatory and humorous and joyful way of doing that. I had this thought this past week about the way in which kissing is so much present in the Jewish culture in relation to objects. Like you drop your yarmulke on the ground and you pick it up to kiss it or you drop your book on the ground or you kiss the mezuzah when you enter. When the Torah is paraded around the room, you kiss it. You have this kiss transference all the time. I, don't, I guess it was just like a queer humorous thought. What if somebody had this kind of object kink? So they would just <laughs> drop things on purpose. So they'd be like, oops, I dropped my sidur. I guess I'll have to kiss it. <laughs> like, what if kissing was also making out with the, the sidur? Is that what you've been doing all week? Yeah, all week. Making out with the This is, um, I don't know, there needs to be a midrash uh, made on this, potentially. Wow. So... I wanted to ask a little bit about the Belgian context. A lot of the discussions that we've had in recent weeks, but also because of who we are and where we live, study, organize, and which language we produce this podcast in are very much focused on the Anglo-American Jewish world. So to have a perspective from a country like Belgium is very, very interesting. Before we go into intricacies about how Belgium is structured as a country, what does it mean for you to be Jewish in the Belgian context, both from the perspective of someone who belongs to what can be described as a Jewish community or Jewish communities? There is very much a diversity of what that means in Belgium when it comes to Antwerp and Brussels. There was recently some publicity with the Rough Diamonds Netflix show. How do you identify with that as a diaspora community? I have a lot to say, but I don't know what to start. I mean, this is your... <laughs> yeah, so when you you said, have the most... I mean, like, you're from here, yeah. so you can speak really... I'm not going to start about Rough Diamonds right now. Um, <laughs> we'll get, still, we'll get I to still that. haven't seen it. <laughs> So I am from Antwerp, as I said, I grew up there till I was 18. What's very interesting in Antwerp is that above 90%, probably looking at 99% of Jewish children go to Jewish schools, so only have Jewish friends, don't really go outside the community, and there's a strong sense that the outside world is very anti-Semitic, that we're not wanted here, we need to just stick to ourselves. And that also means that people who aren't Jewish rarely even know Jewish people or have Jewish friends. But I went to a state school, so my sister and I, 
I, I think, were almost the only Jews at the school, even though we were in a Jewish neighborhood. And so I grew up around my Jewish family, going to an Orthodox synagogue, around quite traditional grandparents, but not ultra-Orthodox in any sense. But then I also was in a state school and in a context where I didn't have Jewish friends, except for those related to the family. So I always felt a little bit not Jewish enough, I don't know enough, I'm not connected enough. But I realized that that's something that every single Jewish person that I meet feels, so it's quite common. The Antwerp Jewish community, as I mentioned, is very insular. It's very, very, very conservative in terms of values, in terms of relationship with Israel. It's very normal, I mean, even in my family, to grow up with a little KKL Pushka. The Jewish National Fund box. Yes, exactly. Mm, the yeah. box. That's very yeah. normal. Mm. We have some Jewish politicians, unfortunately, in right-wing parties, right-wing nationalist parties. We don't have them in left-wing parties. That's just to say that the community in general is very conservative, very, unfortunately, on the right-wing side. I think in terms of the context, when I talk to my British friends or friends from the US that they maybe haven't experienced is that our grandparents lived in the same places and were persecuted in this place and they experienced that persecution and then had to stay here and live next to those neighbors that didn't act, that didn't do anything or actively harm them. We have concentration camps in Belgium that are still there that you can visit. I think that context is quite different. It's only very recent that the government apologized for the police collaboration. There's a lot of defensiveness around that. So I think that context is very particular. People who maybe didn't grow up in places where there was collaboration and Nazi occupation maybe don't have a similar experience to underline why maybe that is so weird and also a sort of a dissonance coming from so i grew up in the united kingdom and i only came to belgium as a fully made adult it's quite surprising here the extent to which a reckoning with the past in belgium hasn't happened. And that's not just about the Jews and what this country did to the Jews and other groups in the war. It's also about other aspects of Belgium's genocidal history. The conversation about Belgian colonialism, what Belgium did to Congo and Rwanda. There's a real lack of advancement in mainstream society here. There are a lot of groups who are doing a lot of work trying to bring that to more public consciousness and talk about material actions that could be taken. But the debate, for example, over the statues, some of these figures in Belgium's colonial past, that is still dragging on and on and on. It feels very basic coming from a place that is, I mean, Britain has its own shit to deal with there. I'm not saying that it's much better, but it is surprising, I think, if you come here from another context to see that, what that means in terms of how people think about Jews here and what happened to the Jews in this country, it manifests in so many different ways. So as Fenya said, people still have to live here in the same neighborhoods where people denounce them and there hasn't been a sort of proper conversation about that collaboration and the denouncement. There's a national narrative that everyone was a resistant and so they can't really talk about people who really were resistant because the country can't cope with that story because it would unveil the fiction that everybody resisted the occupation of the Nazis and no Belgians 
committed crimes. There are right-wing political and media institutions that have very, very direct links to collaboration entities in the 30s and 40s, and those links have never been broken. This is part of a climate which is often hard to understand for outsiders, in which there are ultra-right-wing nationalists in federal governments. This is weird sort of amnesia. It's very jarring initially, this picture of a country where this is where so much happened that hasn't been dealt with and there is this lack of learning of lessons about the way this country treats migrant people, about the way that fascism is tolerated as a component of mainstream politics. I think some things that I didn't say is that, as Catherine said, conversation around Congo, but also around the Holocaust, is very problematic. Firstly, when we talk about the Second World War, Jewish victims are acknowledged, but Romani victims we don't even talk about in Belgium, forget about it. But there is this sense of Jews are extremely sensitive and they just need to get over it already, Mm. which is extremely common here. And you'll often have newspaper headings which say things like, the The Jews are pissed off again. So you can already see the eye rolls of, oh my God, what now? So Holocaust jokes are fine, anti-Semitic jokes are fine, we take ourselves too seriously, get over it. It's extremely common. Anti-Semitism in general, for me growing up, is just quite a common thing. Often it's complete ignorance, other times it's really not. As I said, because people generally have never met a Jew in their life, so I just have no idea. So it's very dehumanizing, really. And if I disclose that I'm Jewish, then I would get something like, oh, but you're different, you're, you know, a better Jew. Or I would get, oh, but which one of your parents is Jewish? Because I could not be quote-unquote fully Jewish, right? Things like this. Or, oh, does your dad also have the little curls? These kinds of comments. Unfortunately, I think that the Jewish community has felt that isolation is the best strategy. Same as Israel's. We just isolate ourselves. Like, these people don't want us here. We take care of ourselves. That's all we can do. And I get it. I understand where it's coming from. I have empathy for it. But I personally don't think it's the right way to go. We have right-wing parties who now feel that, you know, white Jews are white enough, so we're going to support white Jews and we're going to blame migrants, we're going to blame Muslims for anti-Semitism. Whereas actually it's those parties' ancestors who persecuted us, right? And it's very successful. Unfortunately, it really works. So I think that's what we want to do with our collective is breaking through that and saying we have way more in common with migrants, people of color, people whose ancestors experienced, you know, colonization in Congo and Rwanda, other countries and trying to really stand in solidarity and break through that isolation. Of course, we're a small group. We do our best. But for me, that's super important because we're safer when we're in community with others and when we have connections, not by isolating ourselves. Wow. (laughs) I was thinking about two different ways of approaching the question. One is going off of what Catherine was talking about, not reckoning with the past, thinking about like even further past. And then the other thought was about how things are currently in terms of how people see Judaism or what is it on a normal way or like maybe I start just to say about the past because I started to do research for um, exhibition and performance trying to understand what is Judaism in Belgium. You start to look into the past. The first traces of Judaism are in the Middle Ages. And so like the only lasting records are narratives and imagery that are created around the persecution of Jews in the Middle Ages. So you have a story, a blood libel of claiming that Jews stole the communion wafers from the church in 1370, the main church in Brussels. And then they took it back to their synagogue and on Good Friday they stabbed the communion wafers with their Jew daggers. And instead of 
the communion wafers breaking, blood came out of them. And this story is not specific to Belgium. It's repeated hundreds of times throughout Europe, and it actually even continues to exist within some parts of European society. And so that story then became the excuse to murder all of the Jews in Brussels. A few survived. Basically, it was a cover-up for priests who were lending money in order to earn a high profit. They were doing usury, and then this story was created as a cover-up, also to relieve debts that the church had to Jewish moneylenders. This is also like after the Black Death pogroms, where they also killed, I think, 500 people in Brussels in 1350s. After that point in 1370, Jews are gone from Belgium until Napoleon's time. You have some crypto Jews that exist in Antwerpen area, but like mostly all the remaining Jews just left Belgium. So that story became a sort of central narrative for the Catholic Church of Belgium, and they would parade the communion wafers once a year, and they did this until basically 1870 because there were protests that happened here for the 500th anniversary to not have this celebration happened. You have coins that were minted that show the priests taking money from the Jews while they're burning at the stake. In 1870, you also have stained glass windows that are put into Saint Michel and Gudula, which is the church where the king and the queen are married. It's the head church of the whole country. And those windows show this pogrom, has an image of Jews around a table with hooked noses and daggers stabbing the communion wafers. 14 stained glass windows depicting the whole narrative. They finally apologized after World War II in the 70s. And they put up a tiny plaque saying like, based on our new historical knowledge, we know that this is wrong. All of it to say that they never really dealt with that history either. And that history became central into an understanding of the relationship with Jews as untrustworthy and as being the evil ones in the society. And so like, we can talk about the Holocaust, but we still didn't even deal with before. before. And that's throughout Europe. There's so many narratives that are so foundational to construct how a non-Jewish society relates to the Jewish society. I mean, you have it also with the carnival in Alst, where there's no Jews living, but then yet they still do this anti-Semitic parade. Apparently, it's actually been going on for like 10 years, but they only started talking about it around 2019. They dress up as Hasidic Jews with big fur hats and big noses, and they were standing on money bags with rats on their shoulders, and they parade in the carnival, and that presentation lost them their UNESCO heritage for immaterial goods. So maybe to add that Alf Carnival has existed for a very long time and then the idea is that they can laugh at everyone. So the idea of, you know, it's humor, you should be able to laugh at everything. So you have non-Jewish people dressing in these stereotypical outfits and then when Jews said, hey, this is not cool, then the response was, oh my God, you're so sensitive, for fuck's sake, it's just a joke, get over it. And it's really very hard because every time as a Jewish person in Belgium, you want to say, hey, this is anti-Semitic, please don't do that. You're confirming the stereotype that Jews are so sensitive because once again there you go you're complaining again so it's very easy to dismiss us well I think it's always dismissed what's the name of that town A-A-L-S-T I actually wrote an article about the carnival the mayor basically tried to defend it he went to meet with UNESCO and they're like if you don't tell the people of all that this is wrong you're gonna lose your UNESCO world heritage and he's like I'm standing for my people yeah great 
I mean, it's so weird. I brought it up with a guy here that I met who was transporting an artwork of mine. And basically he's like, but that's our perception of Jews. They're rich diamond traders in Antwerp. We're just making fun of our image of Jewish people. It sounds like that town should twin with Pruchnik in Poland, the town where until quite recently, it's always around Easter, isn't it? They would make a effigy of Judas, drag it around the city and then burn it in the end. And of course, they dress up Judas as a Hasidic Jew, a la Borat style. <laughs> I wanted to ask about Belgium, because it's a bit of a strange country, if you look at it, certainly from a European nation-state perspective, as a country with two dominating ethnicities subdivided with a capital district that acts on its own. This is also something that has attracted a little bit of attention recently when it comes to the discourse around Israel-Palestine, when it comes to two-state and one-state solutions that Belgium could potentially serve as a sort of model for that. But also when it comes to understanding of what Jewish cultural existence and preservation, if you look at it all the way from the early 20th century and the slogan of cultural autonomy, does not necessarily require a territorial basis, splitting up a state into specific zones that this is where this culture gets its majority, this is where this culture gets its majority. As Jews generally have been a population that has dispersed and spread out and concentrated in urban areas, how do these two different ideas of Belgium as it connects to Jewishness around Israel-Palestine and around Jewish diaspora relate to you. Do you think there's any validity or importance to follow Belgium as an example for solving the problems in the Middle East? Or is that just a misunderstanding from the outside? And how do not just Jews, but other minorities as well, including from the different migrant communities that you've mentioned already, how do they navigate around this binational divide? There are, of course, as well, German communities, but primarily, how do these communities that don't get their territorial part in Belgium navigate? navigate around it. Okay. Um, <laughs> as it just so happens that the three of us here have spent a lot of our lives not in Belgium. So we have our own outsider slash semi-outside privileged perspective. Belgium as this absurd, ridiculous, post-nationalist project. We also have to do things like organize rubbish collection and try to access healthcare and deal with all the weird things that being in a country that has six parliaments inflicts on our lives. So it's quite funny hearing the idea that Belgium could be a model for anything. Um, Belgium is not the only country in the world where there are different parliaments, where democracy is divided in a different way to try to give different majority groups a voice in the running of the country. Personally, I find that the history of Belgium where it is, right, is not a history of one group coming in and doing genocide on another group and annihilating their people and their cultural memory and everything about their existence. Whatever squabbles have happened on this little piece of Northern Europe, however many times it's been steamrolled by different countries fighting each other on its territory, you can't compare what's happened here and the relationship between the different groups of people who are in this country, the different groups of people who are existing in Palestine, in which one is a power that is completely dominating and throttling the life force out of the other with the backing 
having our majority of the world's nuclear powers. I think it would be insulting for us to try to draw any major equivalencies between these two realities. I think it would be an insult to the Palestinian people for us to sit here and try and say, well, this is how you could organise it after you've worked out how to stop murdering people. In terms of diasporous identity, there is a lot that is revealing about the fakeness of statehood, I think. That is something that we can talk about in terms of Belgium. Like, it's quite easy to poke fun at it. I think that there is a dread of genuineness there in how the ways that Belgium tries to designate who is a group of people and how should they look after each other and what's a state and, you know, how many politicians did the German-speaking people over on the right-hand side get, that does illuminate very clearly the fakeness of any state. And I think that is quite interesting to think about maybe in terms of we can think post-states, mm. we can think beyond inherited country. I agree with Catherine. I think it's also dangerous in some ways to talk about the artificiality of the country if we interpret it in the way of states should be built around ethnic cohesion and ethnic groups. Because you probably also know about the north of Belgium, Flanders, that has quite a stronghold of the extreme right. So Antwerp, we're getting one in two people voting extreme right. Half of those are voting for actual Nazis. That is a problem. In 2024, we might see a coalition. I'm really hoping that that's not going to happen at all and that I'm being completely unrealistic when I say that. But if that coalition is also pro-Islamish independent state, which would be a nice little fascist tiny state with, what, 6 million people. We can also see, interestingly, in Flanders, Bart de Wever, who's in the NVA, which is the, let's say, fascist light party, <laughs> the second one in the running up. They try to cultivate strong relationships to the Jewish community. I think this week or recently he is visiting Israel for a nice little exchange trip over there. Anti-migrant, very racist and very dangerous and it's not being taken very seriously by many people here. For me that's something that keeps me up at night. <laughs> But it doesn't seem to worry that many people. There's a bit of a culture of complacency, passivity, I think, in this country, unfortunately. The only thing I would say is Brussels is very interesting because it's 70% people who either are from another country or have a parent from another country. Brussels as its own entity is quite a fascinating, chaotic mess that has some amazing potential because of the migrant culture here. <laughs> but it's still, I feel, grabbed by this ethno-nationalistic and inherited power structure but I don't know enough about it really to talk. There was something that you asked about different migrant groups in Belgium and I would just highlight, I don't think we want to speak on behalf of any other such group, but Belgium is a really racist country. Belgium makes life very hard for people who are not white, essentially. So much public angst and hand-wringing. Do enough people in Brussels speak Flemish because it's supposed to be bilingual? What happens if you go into a shop and you can't speak French? and you can't speak Flemish because the person there doesn't speak it. But there is no mainstream political or mediatic attention to any of the other languages spoken most notably by people who are not white, whose migrant background is not European. Important to recognise that you can't put our experiences in parallel with those. Sometimes I fantasise about why not to create a new linguistic government for English but also for Arabic or maybe Portuguese because the German-speaking government is for a population of 
what, like 60,000 people? Mm -hmm. So they have a government for such a small amount of people, but there's so many people who are Arabic speakers, why don't they get a government? Like if we take this logic of Belgium and extend it further, then we should be doing things like that too. Mm -hmm. Just a small point on this, what counts also as a indigenous national minority, big quotation marks, and a non-indigenous minority that doesn't deserve rights. Under Polish law, there are nine national minorities. And in order to be recognized as a national minority, the community needs to have had strong roots in the country for 100 years, which is a very arbitrary point and shows the kind of determination to keep the status quo in a certain ethnic balance. I thought the dynamics of Belgium's internal politics between the Flemish and the Wallons and then Brussels, it's very interesting, very multicultural. And the way I understand diasporism, or at least a part of diasporism, is that it's very much rooted in this radical cultural exchange and really embracing that we can all come from our own places and have our own cultural traditions that we carry, but still come together in one place in a way that is really not assimilatory at all, but also very much about pluralism and really embracing just how beautiful it is that we all come from these different cultures and can celebrate this. And I was really wondering, given how you mentioned how right-wing Flanders is, how racist the country is as well, how do you navigate that politically as a diasporist? For me, diasporism is about building connections and building solidarity with the communities where you live, not aiming for some magical other place where everything will be resolved <laughs> and you'll be safe because you're, you know, you're on your own. So for me, that means that we need to show up when migrants are houseless in the cold and we need to do mutual aid and we need to show up for Black Lives Matter's protests and we need to show up for other communities, which just doesn't happen enough or very rarely. We need to build trust and relationships with other groups. For me, it's about building connections with other groups that experience state oppression, state violence. And so that is, for me, a very practical. Diasporism for me is a practice, right? That was beautifully said. Can't better that. I think it's so interesting in Europe how you have the concept of the national citizenship and then the national identity and how they're very split from each other. Mm. That was something very confronting for me when I first came to Netherlands and then to here. When I came to Netherlands and I would hear somebody speaking Dutch, I just thought they were Dutch. I think it's like this US logic. Maybe it's really naive, but it's just like, oh, you're speaking English and you're in the United States, so you're just an American. Of course, you could come from somewhere else, but that's sense of like what is a real American mm -hmm. seems like such a stupid question or like just so absurd to think about even like where I'm from you don't even know exactly who is Hispanic and who's not Hispanic it's like so blurry because the majority of the population in the city I'm from is Hispanic too and it's generations of intermixing but here it's more recent that people are coming from North Africa from Turkey but they are Belgian citizens but they're not Belgian there's a very interesting word in Dutch that you can't really translate it doesn't exist alochto Yeah. And alochton applies only to non-white migrants. And it means that you are brown and maybe your parent or grandparent is from Morocco, from another country. And so you are alochton now too. But for example, me, my grandparents are from Poland. Every single one of them, I'm not alochton. It's only if you're brown. And it's used very commonly in newspapers. It's not seen as a problematic term or racist term at all. So yeah, there's definitely that sense of people from here are white. But actually, like the legal definition of alochton is just somebody who has a parent from another country. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but it's not perceived in that no, way. No, of course. Yeah. But it's like all these terms like Hastarbeider, <laughs> a guest worker, versus an expat. Yeah, I just think the language that you use, I think that's a really important thing where we will use different languages to reflect these really racialized ways of understanding other peoples. I mean, the fact that your family's from Poland, my family's also mostly from Poland, but we fit into whiteness, so we're able to be seen as American from my context. You're able to integrate into this national identity and it becomes invisible for a lot of people. But then for people that are racialized as not white, the fact that there's a different word that they use, I think that says a lot about ingrained racism that people are willing to use a word like that without really interrogating why you're going to call a migrant of color one thing and a white migrant something else. It's kind of horrifying. I think it might be nice to ask a little bit about what sort of relationships you have with groups, queer groups, Jewish groups on the ground in Belgium, but also situating yourself within this emerging diasporist international. What sort of relationships you guys have? I'm very curious. A bunch of us are also members of other groups, Jewish groups, but also non-Jewish groups, anti-racism, anti-fascism work. That's not something that our collective is officially partnered with, but it just so happens that the three of us are a member of a group called An Andreo Sostem, which means Another Jewish Voice, which is another organising group in Belgium. And that is Jewish people who are active in anti-racist, anti-fascism work, advocacy towards Belgian media and decision makers about Palestine. I can say a little more about the group. I think it's existed for 10 years now. It was after, I can't remember which time, but one of the major assaults on Gaza and a group of Jews got together, really intergenerational. I'm the youngest person being 35. Oh no, there's one person who's 34. We work on anti-racism, anti-fascism, which means that we, for example, are in coalition with trade unions and other groups who are not Jewish to reinstate the 8th of May as a national holiday. I think Eastern Europeans know that it's the feat of the Nazis. And it used to be a holiday here, but then it was kind of eliminated because, I guess, not relevant anymore because fascism doesn't exist now. Um, And so the idea is to reinstate this day as a holiday, but it's a much broader campaign of education, of pushing back against the extreme right. So a part of that, and actually we sang recently some Yiddish anti-fascist songs, Zoknit Kainwul, at a concentration camp about Mm -hmm. half an hour from here, which felt really powerful. There are many Israelis in the group as well who left the country, who from here are organizing in solidarity with Palestinians. We try and do as much as we possibly can from here. And I think one important thing is that Jews are, in some ways, as I said, strategically manipulated or used by politicians in this country. So we try in some ways to use that and say our ancestors were migrants as well. Our ancestors were persecuted and now the government is doing the same thing to migrants from Afghanistan, from you know Libya, from Palestine, from Syria, from wherever they're from. And so we try and put out op-eds or try and write from a Jewish perspective. And it's always hammering on about you didn't protect our ancestors. Now you care about us supposedly, but you're doing the same thing again. That's a little bit. We try our best and we try to also contribute to national level conversations, including with the government on anti-Semitism. The majority, if not almost all of the mainstream Jewish groups really push for this IHRA definition. Criticism of Israel becomes equated with anti-Semitism. So we try and push back on that as well, and uh, from a Jewish perspective. As Shabbos 24-7, we have done a couple of collaborations with anti-racist leftist groups where we have tried to talk about anti-Semitism. 
Something that is absolutely not unique to this country, but is very widespread in this country, is that there is a form of anti-Semitism that appears in leftist organising that simply equates all Jews with Zionism, and that is not perceived as anti-Semitic. We've started a foray into a bit of peer learning support with other groups who are active on the left to explain why that is problematic and that there are different perspectives out there. We have relationships with some queer groups from ethnic and religious backgrounds who are less publicly known, they don't have public profiles for the protection of their members, but we have some friendships there. What else do we do? <laughs> I feel there's like a whole contingent of artists. Things are maybe less like organized with a specific group, but I feel there is something happening there, whether it's like someone's doing an exhibition and so the rest of the group is supporting that, thinking about how we can use the skills of the people within the group to do different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you do have a lot of connections and groups to keep you very much occupied. I speak for both of us now in saying that it was a great pleasure to have you on. You offer a very interesting perspective on a place that we don't know too much about. Are there any final points uh, that you would like to mention before we wrap up? I was just thinking one thing, because we talked a lot about Antwerp, but not really about Mm. Brussels. On like a denominational level, basically Belgium is all Orthodox except for two synagogues in Brussels. One that's kind of like equivalent to Reform, which they call Liberal Judaism, and another which is more of an expat guest worker community <laughs> of English speaking and I don't know how to define them theologically. But... They define as liberal themselves. Okay. So that's a very different dynamic to the United States where it's the inversion of that. And actually you have a lot more Jews than you might think in Brussels. There is I think at least 10 synagogues that are here but it's much more low and it's much more Jews who are non-institutional and are integrated more into the society as just a white Jewish person who's just not necessarily presenting it so publicly. The difference with Brussels and Antwerp is that Jews are very visible in Antwerp because Jews are equated with ultra-Orthodox or Hasidic Jews. So having bias, wearing a hat, etc. As a big Belzer community, they would not live in Brussels. In Brussels, you have one or two kosher shops. They just wouldn't have access to stuff they need. So in Antwerp, you can get the best Jewish pastries, all of the food that you might want, the herring, the this. Here, you can't find it. And also in Antwerp, you really have a Jewish neighborhood. You walk around and you'll just hear Yiddish everywhere. The bells will be in Yiddish which I love reading them whereas here there's not like a specific they used to be historically Jewish areas but right now they're not really anymore more assimilated yeah in Brussels it's not run by our group there's lots of crossover with our group how we relate to different bits of Jewish life here you mentioned the sort of international progressive community of lefty diasporous Jews again these communities don't map completely on top of each other but there is a klezma community here Mm. in Belgium the two of us do some singing Fanny does a lot more than I do there is a klezma festival co-organized by one of our members that happens every year. Music making is part of an expression of this connection to those feelings around around Jewish identity, around the Yiddish language and an expression of that culture. I would also add that our Instagram is a lively, colourful space where anyone can read a lot more about what we're up to. We have our value statement, we have lots of bits of history to do with where our membership comes from. We are simply at Shabbos 247 Shabbos 24-7 our second zine will be launched very soon so if people would like to purchase our first zine or our second zine shortly we do post internationally
Good sales pitch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really grateful that we got to chat with you guys. I mean, there are genuinely so many more questions I have just about Belgium politics and society because it is such a interesting country. It's such a unique country in a lot of ways that I hope we can do this again because I just have more questions. Sounds like you guys are doing some incredible work and I hope that we can do more collaborative things and help build a diaspora international network so that we can work together for the goals that we're all working towards. 